woven into our DNA is this sense from the time that we were kids that we want to be royalty, right? From the time that we're kids, we think, oh, what would it be like to be a king or a queen? What would it be like to be a, a prince or a princess? What's one of the first um, stories you remember from a kid? The story of Cinderella, right? This girl that puts on the slipper, the, the magic happens. She becomes this princess with Prince Charming, the whole deal. Um, you know, if you're of a certain age, you remember Grace Kelly when she was a star of movies. And, and this movie star falls in love with the Prince of Monaco. And Grace Kelly leaves her career in the movie industry to become the princess of Monaco. Incredible story, right? If you're thinking more recently, you think about Kate Middleton, right? She's, she goes to university and she meets this guy named William, who just happens to be the prince of England. They get married and Kate becomes the Duchess of Cambridge. Um, she's the princess of the, of the, um, of the, the, the land of England. Incredible, incredible story. And we can relate to that because we think, oh boy, I think I would, I, I would love to be that. I would love to have that power. I would love to have that position. I would love to wear the crown. I would love to have the servants, the whole deal. And, and yet we forget about what it's like for those who are in charge. We see Kate Middleton and we forget her husband's mom, Princess Diana, and what her life looked like. As a princess that had all this promise at the beginning and just spiraled and went out of control. Um, We want success, right? We want the accolades. We want to have it all. We want to be king of the world. We've talked in this series, All That Jazz, about the king of Israel, David. The boy shepherd who loved God with all of his heart, who had incredible musical skills, who was a Delta Force soldier that killed the nation's number one enemy, Goliath. The king who had it all, and yet he wanted more and became an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer, as we talked about last week. His sin was confronted. Ultimately, he did repent. But as a result of his sin, his family blew up in the worst possible ways. His sons rebelled. They tried to kill each other. They tried to kill him. His family was a mess. Even before David became king, the previous king, Saul, um, Saul went from loving David, throwing parties for him as he went off to war, to trying to kill him. David escaped with his life, but had to think, is this the thanks that I get for serving the king? At one point in his life, David is in the depths of despair. He's so alone, he feels like he's lost contact with God completely. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that sense that God was so distant? Like you were completely alone, like everyone was laughing at you. That they were making fun of you. Maybe at work you chose a path of integrity. You chose to do the right thing. And you were ostracized as a result. You lost your seat at, your ta- at, your seat at the table. You lost your relationships. Maybe even lost your job because you were trying to do the right thing. Maybe, maybe you experienced that distance from God because financially you're not making it. 
You've tried to cut expenses. You've sold your treasures and heirlooms. And yet you keep going further and further and further in debt. Your cars have been repossessed. You've been evicted. You can't go to the doctors because you don't have insurance and you don't have the money to pay for it. You apply for every job imaginable and no one will hire you. Some won't hire you because you don't have experience, but you can't get experience if nobody will hire you. Some won't hire you because you have too much experience and you're overqualified. Some won't hire you because you're too young or you're too old. And you know that they're not really allowed to do that, but it seems like that that's the only thing that's making a difference. Maybe you sense that separation from God because your business is tanking and you just can't see any way out. Your marriage is falling apart and you're trying everything. You're coming to church, you're going to counseling, you're reading scripture, you're doing the love dare thing. And the distance between you and your spouse just continues to grow. Maybe, maybe you're trying to have a baby and nothing's happening and you look around and Your friends are all pregnant. Some of them having second, third, fourth babies. And you think, God, you don't hear me at all. It may be that you carry memories from childhood of parents that didn't love you, that didn't encourage you, that maybe a mom or dad that left and that you've never heard from again. And that abandonment that you experienced as a kid has sabotaged every relationship since. You keep waiting for that one thing that will cause your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your husband or your wife, your boss to walk out of your life just like your mom or dad did all those years ago. Maybe you're caught in a destructive addiction and you've decided you're going to beat it. You plead to God for his help. You're not going to take that drink. You're not going to go make that buy. You're not going to make that phone call. You're not going to go to that website. And a few weeks or days or hours later, you've given in and the shame and the loneliness that you feel is excruciating. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's just that you've moved farther and farther from God. When we sing, you don't feel anything. When you read scripture, it's just words that seem to blur together and they don't seem to impact you at all. When you pray, it feels like you're just talking to yourself. You know intellectually that God's the answer. You know in your head that he's real and that he's there, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Instead, God feels like a cruel joke. I I remember a TV series uh, about 10 years ago, West Wing. Do you remember that? Martin Sheen was the president, uh, Josiah Bartlett, of the United States. There's, I, I didn't watch a lot of that series, but we lived in D.C. at that point in time, so it was, it was kind of a fun thing to see. I remember one clip from one episode that has stuck with me. It was the finale for, for the season that ended in 2001 in, in April of that year. And in it, Martin Sheen is walking in the National Cathedral. It's an it's a incredible, majestic place. That's a picture of that particular scene where, where he's talking, where he's praying. His secretary... Uh, a woman who had worked for him for a long time, had just bought her first new car, had driven it off a lot, and a drunk driver had killed her. Martin Sheen has, in, in this, um, at this time in the, in the show, he has MS, and he's just ready to tell the nation that the president of the United States has multiple sclerosis. And in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, um, this character is just pouring out his heart 
in anger to God about the lack of fairness that it seems like God has. And he, and he uses a phrase that, that, that has stuck with me for 15 years. He, he calls God, are, he says, are you, are you just a feckless thug? A feckless thug, a capricious being that's out there just, just going willy-nilly making decisions to hurt people here and there. Have you ever felt like that? That God's capricious, that he's unfeeling, that he's unfair, that he's vindictive. That's David as he writes Psalm 22. What's crazy is we don't know his circumstances. We don't know what was going on in his life. We don't know why he writes what he does at this point in time. But clearly he's at the end of his rope. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Psalm 22. Um, take one out of the front of the pews if you don't have one. It's going to be on screen, but it's better to have it in your hands. You know, if you've got an electronic device, go there. David at this point is overwhelmed with this sense of loneliness and isolation with this sense of abandonment and despair. Listen to what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day and you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Jumping down to verse 6, I'm a worm, God, and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by people. Everybody who sees me mocks me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. He delights in God. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They look at me and they gloat over me. They divide my garments. They're gambling for my clothing. But you, God, don't be far off. Be my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Do you hear the heart of David in Psalm 22? The distance that he senses between himself and God, the loneliness, the abandonment, the pain. There, there are a couple things that I want to communicate from our perspective as we look at Psalm 22 with David. It's this. If you're there, if you're living at that place in the world right now, um, understand that you're you're not alone. Um, you're not alone in your pain. And it's okay to express that to God. It, it seems to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who, from the time I was little, came to church every week. I think probably the first Sunday that I was in this world, I was probably in church. Um, the, 
Church has always been a part of my life. And I think for a lot of us, when we come to church, we look around and we think everybody's life is in good shape. Oh, look at all those people. Everybody's got everything together, right? Oh, that family, um, they get along great. All of their needs are taken care of. They've, uh, They've got more than enough money. God's blessed them. We think everybody's in good shape. And we don't realize how many people are living in Psalm 22. How many people are here because they're desperate for God, but they sense that distance between God and themselves. You're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your pain. The great theologian said, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Um, You know, Pain is a part of our lives. David, the man after God's own heart, felt abandoned by God. He felt isolated from his friends. He felt like his life wasn't worth much more than that of a worm. You're not alone in your pain. Satan wants you to believe that you're alone. That God has taken care of everybody else. That you're the only one. That he's abandoned. When a wild animal is hunting prey, he isolates an animal from the rest of the pack. He separates them from the rest of the herd so that the more isolated they are, the more and more vulnerable they become. Once they have them eliminated from the rest of the group, they can be destroyed. That's Satan's plan for us. To have us have this sense that we are so far gone from God that God could never rescue us. You're not alone in your pain. And here's the second thing for us, I think, from Psalm 22. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't abandoned you. Listen, listen, uh, in in the midst of all of that cry of David, go go back up to verse 3 and listen to this. David says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted, they weren't put to shame. Verse 19, but you, Lord, don't be far off. You are my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. God has not abandoned you. The two big takeaways from our perspective that I want you to walk away with today, that they may sound depressing. They may take you a place you don't want to go. They make you think about things that they may make you think about things you don't want to think about. 
But we've got to think about them because in reality, those two thoughts are filled with hope. You're not alone in your pain. And God hasn't abandoned you. Those are those are not statements that sometimes you hear that it's like, oh, you know what? Yeah, your situation is bad, is bad, but it could be worse. You just need to suck it up. Put your head down. Hang in there. It's not that kind of statement at all. They're statements that affirm that your pain is real. We live in a broken world. We live in a place that is tragically unfair. And yet the God of the universe walks through every step of life with us, alongside us. You know, when you read Psalm 22, a lot of it sounds really familiar to us, doesn't it? It takes us to Jesus in an incredible way. Psalm 22 is one of those psalms that we talked about several weeks ago that's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that throughout it, it points to Jesus. In verse 1, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may have never read the Psalms before, but you may know that phrase because that's one of the things that Jesus said on the cross exactly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as Jesus was raised up and nailed to the cross? In verses 6 through 8, David says this, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people. Everybody who sees me mocks me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew, Matthew in chapter 27, writing the biography of Jesus, describes this scene at the cross. Those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Do you understand the parallel that's there in Psalm 22? Incredible. In verse in verse 14, David says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. And that describes the scene at the cross after Jesus has died, when the soldier comes up and pierces him in the side and water comes out of his chest cavity, not just blood, but blood mixed with water as the pericardium, that sac around the heart was burst. In verse 15, David says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Have you ever been in one of those places where uh, we used to call it playing football? You have cotton mouth. There there is no, you can't get saliva at all there. It's just not there and available. That's what David describes Jesus on the cross in the midst midst of horrible torture said, I'm thirsty. Verse 17, David says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. You know, John, John reports that none of Jesus' bones were broken, which was unusual in a crucifixion. We'll talk about that more in just a second. 
But David's describing this place of despair. And in reality, when Jesus was on the cross, it would have been possible after his beating to look at his body and to see every bone that was there. As he as he heaved, as he um, struggled to get air, it would have been easy to see. In verse 18, David says about about his enemies, he says, they divide my garments among them and, and for my clothing, they cast lots. John reports again in chapter 19 and says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. John refers right back to Psalm 22, to that verse and attributes it to this to the specific um, incident, the specific nature of what Jesus went through on the cross. I want I want to encourage you um, in your in your life group, maybe in your family, maybe just for yourself to to get a copy of of the sermon-based questions. There's, um, in this week's stuff, there's an opportunity to just take a look and compare what Psalm 22 says with the accounts that are written um, in the Gospels about the crucifixion and just look into a study to see how that matches up and what difference it makes. In Psalm 22, there's this sense of the separation between David and God. But inherent in that, when you look to the cross, is this incredible sense about the bigness of God. Because when you read Psalm 22 and you read the accounts of the crucifixion, you've got to come to one of two conclusions. There's really only one of two conclusions. One conclusion would be to say, you know what? There's no way that those two things could match up that incredibly. Those six or seven references could, could fit with Jesus' crucifixion. There's no way that could happen. Psalm 22 had to be written after the crucifixion. So that so that it could copy what Jesus experienced. The only problem with that is that the Psalms were written a thousand years before Jesus was born. There was no way to sneak that in after the crucifixion and say, oh, yeah, that's always been there. The the nation of Israel used the book of Psalms as their worship texts. And it existed long before Jesus was born. The other option is that there's a God of incredible power. A God who could work through David even in the midst of his separation and despair, even in the midst where David felt so abandoned. God could work through him as he was putting words on paper. And those words, God knew, would reflect what Jesus would experience because that God is not bound by time or space. That God is a God of all power, a God who knows everything, a God for whom nothing surprises him. God has not abandoned you. If, if we could work right now through, through David and, and his prophecy, if, if God could work through David and his prophecy right now about the death of, of Jesus, he knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows everything about where you are and what you're experiencing. He knows about every struggle that you have. And you are not alone. 
the horror of the crucifixion is real. Um, what, I, what I want to do in, in the next few minutes is just talk about what Jesus experienced Because for most of us, when we think about the cross, we tend to think about the cross this way. Smooth edges, sometimes maybe a piece of jewelry. It's a reminder of what Jesus went through, but but we miss the horror of what Jesus experienced for us. Of what he took on himself so that he could redeem us. So just in a quick way, we're, we're going to take a look at the crucifixion and then we're going to share in a time of communion, a time where followers of Jesus can just respond to that and can take symbols that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus. And then we're going to spend some time just worshiping together the God who would send his son to earth so that we could be reconciled. If you think about the crucifixion, if you think about what happened, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. Um, The biographers of Jesus describe that he prayed um, drops of sweat like blood. Doctors tell us that in times of extreme stress, that capillaries in your forehead can break and that you can sweat out blood. It doesn't happen very often, but in times of tremendous stress, that can happen. That's what Jesus experienced because he knew what he would experience when he went to the cross. He was betrayed by his best friends. They all left when he came to be arrested. One of his closest friends, Peter, denied him three times. Jesus had predicted it. They take Jesus to Caiaphas, to the religious leaders, the guys who should have recognized that he was the Son of God, and and they taunted him. They hit him in the face. Ultimately, they send him to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him. Pilate sends him to, uh, to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate ultimately says, okay, he's going to be crucified. Something happened to Jesus that that um, that I think we miss. Typically in Roman crucifixions, they didn't scourge the, the victim, the, the person who was, who was going to experience the crucifixion. They didn't do that. They allowed them to go to the cross um, with, with pretty much all of their faculties intact, which is ultimately why they survived sometimes um, eight, nine, ten hours on the cross because their muscles were still there. Not so with Jesus. Once the scourging was authorized, they took a whip that had thongs of leather that, and attached to the, the, the ends of those pieces of leather, metal balls. It may have been pieces of bone, um, metal fragments, that when, when the whip was lashed onto Jesus' back and legs and shoulders, they would catch in his flesh and pull the flesh out. You know, the, the, first, the first several would have just hurt incredibly, and bruised the muscles. But after four or five or eight or ten lashes, they would have penetrated the skin and begin to just pull it apart. And every time, every lash would have eaten at his flesh and pulled it, pulled it apart until at, at, um, at the point that he was done, his entire body was just a bloody mess. As they took him off that scourging pole, with his arms extended so that all of those muscles were exposed. As they took him off that, they put a robe on him and taunted him. They put a scepter in his hand, a stick, and said, okay, you're the king. Prophesy who hit you. They put a crown of thorns, um, branches with, with 
When you see the plants in Israel, they've got spikes that are about three or four inches long. That's what they placed on Jesus' head into his forehead. And then they hit them and said, who, who hit you? You prophesy. You're the king. After a period of time, they ripped that robe off Jesus. If you've, ever, uh, if you've ever had a wound and had a bandage pulled off a wound that's begun to, where the blood's begun to clot, it's a, that's a horrible feeling. Jesus experienced that. Ultimately, they put the, the cross piece of the cross onto his shoulders. They tied it to his shoulders and had him walk about 650 yards up the Via Dolorosa to, to Golgotha, to where it was. Jesus had been, had been um, lashed uh, 40 times, 39 times. He didn't have the strength. He would have collapsed. He was at a point near death at that point. He couldn't carry that piece of wood that probably weighed 110 pounds. They pull in Simon of Cyrene. He carries that piece the rest of the way as Jesus goes up to Golgotha. When they get there, Jesus is just struggling with every step, and they lay him down on that piece of wood. Take your hands, and you can feel where your radius and ulna split in your wrist, those two bones that are there in your forearm, the, the spike that, put, that attached Jesus to the cross would have gone through that hole so that when he was there, when he was extended, if it would have been in his hand, his hands would have pulled away from the cross because of the weight of his body. But in between those two bones, it wasn't going to move at all. Think about once... Once those spikes were there, as they then spiked his feet to the cross, every hit would have sent throbbing pain through his body. And ultimately, once Jesus was attached to the cross and they lifted it up and they put it into the hole in the ground that would support his weight and lift him up as it struck the earth in the bottom, all, all of those points of contact had to shake his body in an incredible way. The pain Crucifixion was torture. It was the worst torture imaginable. And sometimes we think about the cross and the the thought just goes through our minds. Ultimately, as Jesus is extended on the cross, um, he says the seven phrases that oftentimes we we, uh, study through, we hear at Easter time. One of those phrases, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. The pain that Jesus experienced happened um, every time he took a breath. If you think about being extended this way and your feet being not underneath you, but nailed behind you, the only way that Jesus could breathe would be to push up on the nails that were in his feet. That was the only way he could get air in and out of his lungs. If he didn't push up on his feet, the pressure was completely on those spikes that were in his wrist, holding him up. Every moment was agony. Jesus experienced that for us. He went to the cross for us. He went so that we could experience a relationship with God, the creator of the universe, so that our sins could be forgiven. Ultimately, as Jesus struggles for breath, the the sack around his heart, the pericardium, 
just began to fill with fluid. And Jesus died ultimately because his heart could beat no longer. The pericardium was so full of fluid that when the, when the soldier put the spear through his ribs and it struck that sack, all of that fluid came out. Oftentimes what happened on the cross in the crucifixion was that, the, that the, the person on the cross suffocated to death. And the reason they suffocated to death in the midst of all that agony was the soldiers would get tired of the process and they would break the bones in their legs. They could no longer push up and, and, and they would suffocate because they couldn't get any air into their lungs. Jesus didn't experience that. His bones weren't broken Jesus came to earth with a full understanding of what he would experience for us. In the garden, he knew what lay in front of him. And he did that for us, for each of us. Psalm 22 ends with hope. In the midst of David's abandonment, he, he, that, that sense of abandonment, he knows who God is. And he says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has made the difference. Jesus has given us hope. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. You don't have to be good. You don't have to um, uh, do all kinds of stuff. Just receive the fact that Jesus died for you. In the midst of those feelings of abandonment and loneliness, he has done it. The truth is that what Jesus experienced exceeds any isolation, any pain, anything that we've ever experienced. He did it so that we could experience freedom and hope and joy. He did it so that we could become princes and princesses. Scripture tells us that we've been adopted by God. That we've been made sons and daughters, joint heirs, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Kate Middleton became the Duchess of Windsor, or the Duchess of Cambridge by marrying William. We become royalty. We become a part of God's family because of what Jesus did. Not because of anything that we've done, but only because we receive forgiveness that Jesus offers by taking our sins on himself. He died so that we could live. He came back to life after his death to prove that there is life beyond the grave, that, life, that there's life beyond the earth. What we're going to do right now is just as followers of Jesus, it's a chance to really focus on the reality of what Jesus experienced for us. We'll take a, a cracker, a, a little wafer, reminds us of the body of Jesus. We'll take juice that reminds us of Jesus' blood that poured freely from his head, his hands, his side, his feet. You know, 
it may be that you're here today and, and you're not even sure that you believe in God. It may be that you're here because you're, you're just honoring somebody else who came along for the ride. It may be that you're here and you hear the story of Jesus and you think, yeah, I kind of know that that's there. But I'm pretty content running my own life. I want to give you permission in the next few minutes to just pass the tray. Don't feel like you've got to do what, what others are doing. Pass the tray on the next person. That's okay. But here's what I want you to do. If that's, if that's where you are, I want you to think about how did Psalm 22 describe so accurately what happened to Jesus and his crucifixion? How did that happen? And is it possible, is it possible that God really did come to earth and die for me? If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, the trays are going to be passed. Take, take me Go ahead and come on down. Take those as they're passed and, um, and just spend the time that you need to talking to him, worshiping him, receiving the love of Jesus. We're going to have just a little quiet time and then we're going to sing and sing several songs to worship and respond back to him as we share in this time of communion.